let's pray after that. Let's just, Father God, thank you so much that you are our strong deliverer. Father, thank you that you are our great I am. Father, who leads us through our lives. And Father, pray now as we look into your words, speak to us. Father, we pray and guide us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you ever feel lost in life? I'm not a big fan of sat-nav, so I often have that feeling of being lost in Leeds and several other cities. If you want to find out a few stories, speak to Caroline afterwards, my wife, and she'll tell you about the number of cities that we've been lost in, uh, in the car. But we can be lost, can't we? Not just in uh, journeys, but in life. Sometimes big changes can occur, and we don't quite know where to go, what to do. It might be uh, as we're moving schools, it might be as we're moving towns, it might be as retirement's looming, or different stages arriving in our lives. And we start to ask those questions, what do I do? Where do I go next? Life can be very disorientating, can't it? never quite know what's around the corner. And even when those things aren't happening, we can still feel lost in life, can't we? We still don't know quite where we're going. We might feel like we're just treading water. What are we doing? Well, the Israelites here in our passage have just been sent out of Egypt with a mighty hand. God has dealt with the Egyptians for now. And the people are out of the land. But what now? What are they to do? Where are they to go? Who are they now? Before, they knew who they were. They were slaves in Egypt. But what does it mean for them to be a people now? And in the passage that we've got this morning, God begins to answer some of those questions. He begins to orient Israel to their new future and show them where to go. But the words that we have here in this passage are not just for the Israelites alone. The Israelites that come out of Egypt are held up more than any uh, people, more than any example in the Bible as an example for New Testament believers. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, quite a few quotes from there this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's talking about that wilderness generation that we're looking at this morning. What happened to them serves as an example for us. We're to learn the lessons that they were to learn. We're to follow the path that they should have followed. So what is the Lord teaching them and us this morning in the passage before us? Well, firstly, we are not our own. We are the Lord's. Have a look with me again at verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. Now, throughout the Bible, we see that the firstborn have special privileges. I've always felt a little bit annoyed at that because I'm secondborn uh, in my family. I don't know if they share the same uh, sort of issues. But if you look in the Bible, you know, it's the firstborn who inherit, who have a special birthright. It's often they that are preferred by their fathers. And here they're singled out in yet another way. We're told that the firstborn belong to God in a special way. They are especially his. So when we come down, if you look at verses 11 to 13, we get the same idea. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of all your animals that are males, 
shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Now, in Scripture, God demands the first and the best from his people. The firstborn, the, the, the cream of the crop. They were the people's way of devoting the whole of the harvest to the Lord. You know, so they gave a small part of it, the best part, the first part, and that represented the whole. Well, here, instead of first fruits, it's the firstborn. All that opens the womb is his. All that opens the womb in one way is, is sort of especially his. All are his, but the firstborn sort of represent the whole. And that partly explains it, is taking the Egyptian firstborn. They sort of belong to him in a special way anyway. They're devoted to him. And in the Bible, things are devoted to God either by service or by sacrifice, by death or by devotion. So in the land of Egypt, it was sacrifice. That's what happened. They were destroyed. In the case of the Israelites, it would be service. The firstborns really were devoted in service to God. It seems here almost the idea that they're the priests at this point. Later on, it will be the Levites. There will be a swap that takes place after the golden calf, where the firstborn are swapped with the Levites. But even then, the firstborn must be bought out of their service to God for it to be passed to the Levites. They need to be redeemed. And to this day, five shekels are given to a priest on the birth of a Jewish child to redeem them from the service that they owed. Otherwise, the implication would be that they would belong to God and would be in his service as a priest. So that was the role of the firstborn. But it was also true of animals, do you notice there as well? Strange detail. The firstborn of clean animals were to be devoted to God as sacrifices. But anything unclean that could not be offered on the altar is to be replaced by something else. So the donkey is picked up as the example here. There were lots of donkeys that they would use to carry things. But the donkey was to be substituted for a lamb. The donkey was unclean and couldn't be sacrificed. So it was redeemed, it was brought back, it was able to survive because of the death of another. Similar to how the lamb died instead of the firstborn at Passover, which is what we saw last week. Later on, the law will explain that that five shekels must also be paid for an animal. It was a way of redeeming the animal, buying it back. But the big idea here is that the, the part is given to show that the whole belongs to God. The firstborn is the first fruits, showing that the whole belongs to him. So if you want to think about this in terms of New Testament, if you want to think about a New Testament verse to say this, it would be 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So in your body glorify God. Or Romans 14, 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So that whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to God. We're twice his. Made by him, so we belong to him. And redeemed by him. Paid for by the blood of his son. As it says in Titus 2, our saviour Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. 
We as a people are devoted to God. We belong to him. We are here for his purposes. There's a hymn we sometimes sing, isn't there? This life I live is not my own, for my Redeemer paid the price. And it's true. Your life is no longer your own. My life is no longer my own. It's his. It belongs to God. Jesus has paid the price. And that means when we're seeking direction, we're not to ask so much, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? But what does he want me to do? Where does he want me to go? Now again, the world would say, look inside yourself for the answers. You know, just 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 sit long and hard and think about what you want. But the Bible says, look outside yourself for answers. So guidance, in one sense, is not a matter of waiting for God to speak. God has already spoken. It's just not the sort of guidance that we often want, is it? God tells us in his word how to honour him. But we want to know what will be best for us. Imagine the things here that God talks about. So he talks about redemption of the firstborn. And he talks about the the, the, uh, feast of unleavened bread. Now imagine if you were an Israelite coming out of Egypt, that would not be the top of your priority list. If you think, what is God going to talk to about first? It's going to be about something else, isn't it? You know, this is a feast that we've got to keep next year, that's what he's saying. And the redemption of the first one, well, that's about having children. We just want to get out of Egypt and into somewhere safe. And the questions they want answered are, Lord, how are we going to live? How are we going to survive? How are we going to feed ourselves out here? What if the Egyptians come after us? But God here pauses, doesn't he? And gives them instructions about who they are. And who they are to be. They are to be his. That's what he wants them to remember, first of all. And they were to act in a way that showed that. And this act of redemption, that buying back of the people, was to have a special place in Israel. Along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread here, which we looked at last week, they are to have a special place of being passed down to their children. So if you look at verse 8, it says, You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did when we came out of Egypt. That is why we're eating unleavened bread. Or verse 14, And when in time comes, your son asks, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And that was the acting of redeeming people. It was to be passed down to future generations, these two things. And they were to be of immense importance. So verse 9, it says, And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And then verse 16, It shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. He singles out these two things and said they're immensely important. Now those things about having them on your forehead and on your hand, they're said about the law in general later on, that Moses passed down to them. Now some Jews take that very literally. See, sometimes we'll see folk with these things. Um, we can try and pronounce it. Phylacteries, or tefillin, they call them. And those little boxes that they've got there contain scripture verses. The idea of having the law of God on their forehead. Uh, and on their hand, on their wrist. But that's taking it very literally, isn't it? I don't think that's what God is intending when he says these words. 
What he means really is that it's to be something in their minds, something in their actions, something that is always to be before them, between their eyes, visible to them, visible to the world around them. Here is that that feast of unleavened bread, that fresh start that we talked about last week. And the redemption of the first one, those things are to be before their eyes at all times, in their minds, in their actions. Now the idea actually is picked up in the New Testament in a rather strange place. In the book of Revelation, there's a beast who puts a stamp, his mark, in the same places on the forehead and on the hand. It's often missed in the discussion of what the mark of the beast is. But instead of those things, instead of the word of the Lord, instead of redemption and holiness on their minds and their actions, their thoughts and their actions are marked by the beast, by the bat, by evil. So it's not so much microchips and barcodes, but minds and hearts and actions corrupted by evil. And that's more the devil's MO, isn't it? That's more the way that he works. He gets us to think and do things. He tempts us in those ways. That's how the beast operates. It's also explained why in Revelation, to to have the name of the Lord on your forehead is the alternative. It's described as having the sign of the Spirit on their forehead. And in the book of Revelation, you can have one or the other. In the Apostle Paul's language, in Colossians, you can have your mindset on earthly things or on the things above. Or in Romans, you can have your mindset on the flesh or on the spirit. Those are your two options. <coughs> God wants the Israelites and us to set our minds on holiness and redemption. Those are the things that are symbolised in the two acts that we've been looking at. In this new life that we're to live for him, that is what we're to keep before our eyes. That is what we're to keep looking to. To bring to our thoughts. They're our true north, if you like. They're where we we settle, where we are. And that's what he wants us to think about as he guides us. To get compass points, this is what he wants us to consider. So has it ever dawned on you to ask, will this choice help my holiness? Well, what I decide help me to be more holy, my choice of partner, my choice of house, my choice of church. What decision will most please my master who redeemed me? What would show that I am his in my life? My choice of lifestyle, my choice of leisure, my choice of how I treat other people. God sets the big things in order. He has those things in control, under control. Our job is to follow God in the detail, in the small things. We are not our own. We belong to him. That is the first big lesson that God wants us to learn from our passage this morning. Second, we're not overburdened. We are protected. We're not overburdened. We are protected. Let me read to you verses 17 to 19. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led them around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up from the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear solemnly, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. 
tucked away in our passage is another example of the Lord's care for those people who belong to him. He doesn't send them to the land of the Philistines. He sends them via the desert. Now the Philistines at this point had not been forced in that area. There was a little while yet in history for them to come and be as big as they will be uh, later on. But at this point they had begun to establish colonies in the area. They're mentioned in Genesis already. Isaac and Abraham meet with them. But they're not mentioned in verse 5 along with the Canaanites because they weren't from Canaan. They were a sea people from the eastern Mediterranean. And they were a formidable people. Not until the time of David, 500 or so years later, were they actually finally subdued or partly subdued or come back again at points. They were able to hold their own against Israel and the Egyptians for all that time. But at this point, they're relatively the new kids on the block. And they've not participated in the sins of the Amorites that the Lord referred to back in Genesis 15, where he talked about why they were to take the promised land. The quickest route from Egypt to the promised land went through Philistine territory. There was a highway, there was a road, a well-beaten track that could take them there. That way, on foot, would have taken them just a couple of weeks to reach Canaan. But God deliberately doesn't send them that way. Whilst they're in battle formation, in verse 18, these men have never seen war. They've never been through it. Remember, they've been miraculously rescued. Now, God could have miraculously rescued them from the Philistines. But seemingly, even the thought of the battle could have been enough to turn them back. Which is almost certainly true when you follow the story through and how often they suggest going back. Even without the Philistines, the Israels proposed going back to Egypt in Numbers 14. And they're always reminiscing and seeing Egypt through rose-tinted glasses. In the very next chapter, they're going to lament the fact they haven't died in Egypt. That's where they're at at the moment. God knows this, though. God knows what state they're in. He knows the weaknesses of his people. And so he doesn't ask them to go that way. He knows what will be too much for them. So he sends them another way. If this was a New Testament verse, it would be 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I've not noticed until this week that that verse is actually in that section about the wilderness generation. It's that same passage that we read earlier. It's the same passage we quoted last week about the Passover lamb. God doesn't test them beyond what they can bear. He's kind to them, and he gives them a means of escape. He doesn't ask them to face down the Philistines. But that doesn't mean that his means of escape is simple or hassle-free. His means of escape looked at first like he led them into a giant dead end. That's what we're going to see next week. On the face of it, it looked like they were going to get into more trouble going this way than if they'd have taken on the Philistines. So Exodus 14.11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? In their heads, it's out of the frying pan into the fire, out of slavery into the sea. His means of escape here is actually quite scary. It requires faith. And it's difficult. But it is the Lord's means of escape. 
And it will work. It does work if they'll just trust him. And the same is true in our relationship with the Lord. He will not push us beyond what we can bear. He doesn't ask us to face down the Philistines. But that does not mean that the way of escape is easy. Every day we face evil desires, temptations. Temptations to lose our temper. Temptations to gossip. Temptations to lust. Temptations to lie. Temptations to live for ourselves and not for him. But every time, every time the Lord provides a means of escape for that temptation. Every time. The problem is that we're often really bad at seeing them or really bad at taking them. The escape can seem more trouble than just giving in. We see the problems in the escape route clearer than we see the danger of the temptation. No, Lord, I can't tell the truth here. Do you know how much trouble I would get into? No, Lord, I can't walk away from that. What would people think of me? The means of escape is not always easy. It can be scary. It can require faith on our part. But it's always there. And God will not put us in a situation where there is no escape, where it's beyond what we can bear with his help. Now I say that not to make us feel guilty for times when we haven't taken those escapes, but to encourage us to look for them in the future. When you've been caught in a fire, you begin to notice the fire exits, don't you? You ever sort of notice that when you hear about it? When your brakes have failed on a hill, you begin to notice those little ways they put at the side of hills to sort of let you off. Well, you've fallen into sin. When you fall into sin, use it as a spur to look for the escape route next time, if that's happened. God will not overburden you. He will protect you. And that's the second lesson God wants us to learn. And the people do trust God here with their escape. Well, Moses does at least. He takes Joseph's bones with him into the wilderness. He really does believe that he's going to get there. Joseph made his brother swear to take his bones back when God visited them and brought them back into the land. Remarkable to think that Joseph knew that they'd be there quite a while and that those things would happen too. And here Moses trusts that this is the time when he takes Joseph's bones with him to bury them in the promised land. God has visited his people, which is our last point. We are not alone. The Lord is with us. Let me read to you verses 20 to 22. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God's presence here is pictured as a pillar, a column of cloud. From descriptions elsewhere, it's probably just one pillar, fiery on the inside, cloudy on the outside, so that it sort of lights up at night. It's always with them on their journey. It does not depart from them. It was a sign of God's presence with his people. The cloud guided them through the wilderness. It protects them at points, and it gives them light on their journey. I read this week that in the ancient world, when a general arrived to his army, he would light a bonfire to signal his presence in the camp so that everybody knew that he was there. 
It would certainly fit with the imagery that we have here. The general of the army has arrived in the camp. But even without the military connotations, it shows them that the Lord is with them. The Lord who appeared to Abraham with great darkness around him and as a smoking firepot and flaming torch. The Lord who appeared to Moses as a burning bush. All those times with fire. Those times were when God promised to bring them out of the land of uh, Egypt and into the land of Canaan. Perhaps that's why God chooses this particular image of fire and cloud at this time. And it symbolises his presence on Mount Sinai when they get there too. This is the one who has promised to rescue them. This is the one who promised to take them out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. The cloud also possibly makes an appearance at the transfiguration when Jesus speaks to Moses and Elijah of the exodus that he will accomplish in Jerusalem. In Matthew, the cloud that appears over them is described as a bright cloud, probably not dissimilar from what we have here. But if we really wanted a New Testament equivalent at this point of what is going on, it would be Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. The cloud is going to do all sorts of things. But the main thing, the main point that it is doing, is showing them that God is with them. God's presence is going with them on the journey. They are not alone. Now that will cause all sorts of issues, actually, on the way. Issues like, how can a holy God be with a sinful people without consuming them? Issues that won't finally get resolved until the New Testament. But God is with them, and God is with us. And like them, he is there to guide us and give us light on our journey. Now I really dislike uh, life as a journey metaphors and imagery. It often descends into cliches and sort of things that you get on posters with cats and roads that run off into the distance. You've all all seen them. But in this case, I'm going to make an exception. God is with us on the journey. God is there to guide us on the journey. Like the Israelites, we know the final destination, the promised land. But like them, we don't know what route he will take us. He doesn't tell us all the twists and turns our lives will take. Instead, he wants us to trust him. To follow his lead in situ, in the situation that we are in. He guides us not by telling us the specifics of what the journey will be, but by promising to be with us on the journey. What he does tell us, though, is that the road ahead is going to be hard. The same is true for the Israelites. But God says that he will be with them. He will not leave them or forsake them. And the New Testament tells us that he will not leave us or forsake us. Friends may come and go on the journey, but the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. We have a captain, we have a guide on the road who will not desert us in our time of need. He will come through. Even when we feel lost, we're not really, are we? Because he is with us. We don't know the way. But the Lord does. The Lord knows the way through the wilderness. So when we feel lost, we need to look to him, don't we? We need to remember that he is with us. Remember that we are his. That he never burdens us beyond what we can bear. And that he will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you that we are not our own. Father, thank you that we are yours. Father, thank you that you purchased us, not with things that perish like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus. And Father, help us to live our lives for you, recognising that we are yours, recognising that you are with us on our journey, and that, Father, you protect us and help us, and keep us going. So, Father, help us to remember that this week in all the twists and turns of life. And, Father, help us to keep looking to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish with a song that reminds us that we're not alone, that Christ has come into our world and that he is with us. So let's stand and sing, we're not alone, for Christ is here.